Welcome to the Lovable Podcast. I'm Kelly Flanagan, clinical psychologist and author of Lovable, embracing what is truest about you so you can truly embrace your life. In this podcast, I'm walking with you each week for one year through Lovable's companion book, the year of listening, loving, and living. This companion book is currently available nowhere else, so I hope you'll join us on this journey as together we recognize, reveal, and resurrect your truest, worthiest, most lovable self. Can't shake these lies, they keep running around in my head. But what if I saw me the way that you see me? What if I believed it was true? What if I traded this shame and self hatred for a chance at belief? Welcome everyone to the 32nd episode of the Lovable Podcast. This week we are going to talk about how to love our people better, not by doing more, but by focusing on less, by deciding to turn pro at one particular way of loving. But first, let's make sure you've got a copy of my free ebook about marriage. It's called The Marriage Manifesto, Turning Your World Upside Down. It explores how to reclaim marriage from the consumer culture mindset that has infected it and make it into the kind of beautiful rebellion it is meant to be. So if you haven't already picked it up, you can go to my website, drkellyflanagan.com, that's drkellyflanagan.com, and sign up at the top of the right sidebar. You'll get the ebook right away and have an opportunity to sign up for my mailing list. If you do, each week you'll get one email on Wednesday mornings with a link to this podcast and to my every other week blog post. Also, when you do that, you'll get a free sample of Lovable, but of course, if you want more than just a sample of Lovable, you can go to lovablethebook.com, that's lovablethebook.com to find out all about it. It's available wherever books are sold, in paperback, digital, and audio. So check it out wherever you like to buy books. Um, I think that's it. Uh, Now let's get on to this week's episode. How to love our people better by focusing on one of our gifts and turning pro at it. Thanks for listening in. Hello, Facebook Live. Welcome to week 31 of the year of listening, loving, and living, which is entitled Turning Pro at the Art of Loving. Today, we're gonna talk about how we all have at least one relationship gift And if we can quit spreading our energies thin and bring them to bear on cultivating and practicing this gift, our places of belonging will flourish. Before we get into this week's topic though, let's check in. Last week we talked about letting go of our hope for some quick and dramatic way to heal our places of belonging and instead focusing on doing the small things, the things we once did, the things we know will help but hesitate to do in order to cultivate renewed belonging in our relationships. So I'd love to hear from you, your experiences with this exercise, or any other experiences you're having so far in the months of embracing your worthiness and cultivating belonging. And while you're, you're thinking about what you want to say, I thought I'd share, I mean, I I thought I'd share one thing that I tried to do over the past two weeks. It may be the only thing I did well in my relationships over the past two weeks, because we are coming off a crazy first two weeks of summer, um, all sorts of fun, um, but all sorts of obligations that continue in the midst of that fun. And I was a basket case for much of it. And um, in fact, I I, opened, I mentioned in the email this morning, I opened up an Instagram account um, as a way to communicate with you all. And my second post was about the very first day of, of uh, summer vacation where I'm working from home, but the kids are all home. And at the end of the day, my wife says, so how did it go? And my answer was, well, it was intense. And the kid's answer was, oh, it was chill. And I'm like, all right, so I've accomplished something there. <laughs> I kept... I kept the stress of that first day mostly off of their shoulders and so they were able to enjoy it, which is, which is good. But in the midst of all this stress, 
um, and in the midst of me uh, being sort of a grumpy old man a lot, um, the one thing that I tried to focus on, um, and this sort of came to me, uh, was eye contact. And that might sound strange, um, but the one thing that I wanted to focus on doing was making eye contact with my people when they were talking to me and asking for my attention. So, in other words, I'm doing dishes, and my oldest is trying to tell me about something he saw on YouTube. I actually put down the dishes and turn and look at him and make eye contact. And half the time he looks at me and is like, what? <laughs> I'm like, nothing, I'm just actually looking at you. Um, so that was that was one simple thing that I tried to practice over the last couple of weeks. Um, being fully present to the people who are, are wanting my presence by making eye contact with them. And um, I probably, I mean, if I was being scored on how well I did that, I'd probably get an F. I probably uh, didn't, didn't even do it half the time that I could have, but that was the effort. So curious to hear about the, the sorts of things that you're focused on right now in these months of belonging as you focus on cultivating that in your relationships. Julie responds, your grading curve is harsh, man. Um, thanks, Julie. That's graceful. I appreciate that. Um, yeah, I don't think I'm down on myself for flunking, um, but uh, just realistically, you know, it's like, eh, I probably could have done better at it, but at least I tried. At least I took the exam, right? Deb W writes, I have a hard time seeing you as a grumpy old man, but I can relate with the co eye contact idea. When I'm frustrated at my kiddos, I tend to not look at them, but in the moment that eye contact would probably release that frustration sooner, and then we could move on. Thoughts? Yeah, I think you added a little bit of nuance to that. Um, you know, I think I, if I were to reflect back on, on my couple weeks, I'd say, yeah, the lack of eye contact was because I felt like I had a million things going on. So I was always multitasking and really not bringing my attention to bear. Um, but I'm also aware um, that <laughs> you say you have a hard time seeing me as a grumpy old man. There's I I have a I have a new book I'm I'm writing and wanting to write it's it's a it's a book that just if if I had the space would leap out of me right now I can sense that and I don't have the space and um, and so I begin to resent everybody around me who's taking up that space um, and then I get really grouchy at them when they're not working as hard as I am at all the things I wish I wasn't having to work at. It's a pretty it's a pretty nasty little cycle I get into. And so Deb, your question about is the not making eye contact, is it serving a function of um, of trying to prevent connection, trying to prevent a, a sort of melting or a dropping of our walls? And I think that's exactly right. It's it's actually a, a really good observation that avoiding eye contact is one way of staying it could be a passive way of staying behind the ego wall, right? Like, um, I don't want to see you. I don't want you to see me. I want to create the space between us right now. Um, it could be a passive aggressive way of firing ego cannons, right? Um, to withdraw, to detach. And if you know that's going to hurt the people around you, it could be a way of, of unintentionally or intentionally hurting them. Um, so yeah, I think there's a lot going on there relationally when we resist eye contact. Um, and, uh, and so yeah, I, I, think, I think that's right on, Deb. Thanks for that observation. And I'll add something to that too. Um, uh, what I'd say is that I, I quit, I quit being such a grumpy old man on Sunday night, and that wasn't a um, a coincidence because on Sunday, for the first time in a while, I actually just set some pretty healthy boundaries and said I'm going to need this space to sort of take care of my stuff. Um, and this is this is one of the things that I will often say to folks 
is if you're beginning to resent your relationships, it's probably because you sh should have set a boundary a while ago. Um, that when we are setting healthy boundaries, you begin to discover that you don't become as resentful nearly as quickly. So I set those healthy boundaries on Sunday, finally realizing what I what was causing my mood and what I was needing. Um, and then sure enough, I found myself um, in a much better place by Sunday night. So um, in places of belonging, everybody is trying to figure out how to set healthy boundaries so that the relationship doesn't become something that they resent and everybody is trying to figure out how to help each other do that in ways that that it can work for everybody now that's a messy messy idea um, and that's why in lovable this I, this concept of belonging is considered act two of our story act two in a story is when things get messy and conflict happens and things don't look very good for a while. So um, when we talk about cultivating belonging, we're talking about figuring out how to negotiate um, boundaries that are sometimes incompatible, but necessary boundaries so that we can continue to enjoy the people that we're with. So um, so yeah, um, I think that, uh, um, I think it's a useful lesson in terms of um, how, to, how to cultivate belonging too. Julie H. writes, it is, an art, it is an adjustment when your normal activities get altered, even though it's good. I can relate in that my youngest two are now home for the summer from college. I'm very happy to have them home, but indirectly, I feel more demands. Can't keep up with food, laundry, shoes, everywhere, questions. Where's this? Where's that? Etc. And finding myself upset with myself because I'm so glad they're home. Does that even make sense? Of course it makes sense, Julie. It absolutely makes sense. I'm so glad it's summertime. I am so glad that all of the new activities that come with this, the space, that my kids get to be well rested, um, that they get to uh, get on a bike uh, in the morning and go off riding and not come back to lunchtime and have those experiences. Um, and yet, um, like you said, new activities come with new challenges. Um, and I think, I think the... Um, you know, the, the tendency is to want to drift into one of the extremes of relating to those those circumstances. And for me, I drifted into the resentment about all the drawbacks of summertime. Um, and uh, and, and the, ten, the, the, the challenge is to sort of stay in that tension and bringing our awareness to both the lovely things about what's going on and the stressful things about what's going on. It's, uh, but if we, it, the, to the extent that we can keep ourselves present rather than in our own heads ruminating about it, then if we're present, we're present to the good things and the bad things. And, uh, and so sometimes it's a matter of simply staying present. Amber writes, wow, I can relate, Kelly. Too many things to do, so very little time. And unfortunately, those around us, we tend to hurt the most when we feel this way. It's overwhelming, and I definitely need to be setting boundaries. How do we do this with our family? That's such a good question. Um, and it's a good point that, like, the irony, right, is that it's the people that we, we belong to the most that we will sometimes take our frustration and resentment out upon the most. Um, they're the safest people to do that with. We know they're probably not leaving us. And so they get the rawest, sometimes um, most hurtful version of us, ironically. Um, and, uh, and so, yeah, we have to really pay attention to that. And how do we set boundaries with our family? My goodness, it depends on the family. <laughs> um, I mean, for me, in my family situation, um, it... It starts with um, it's you know it starts with connecting connecting with my wife, um, understanding 
what are the burdens she's carrying right now, um, sharing the burdens that I'm carrying and saying, how can we sort of help lighten each other's load a little bit? How can we create space for the other person to, to deal with this? It's a sort of a mutual, um, and I think that's really the key to, to boundary setting is that it's not a unilateral process. It's not, this is what I need. This is what I need. This is what I need. It's, um, what does everyone need in this place of belonging and how can we have a conversation making sure that everybody's needs get met? Um, and so I think that's, I think that's a big part of it in families is creating that space for everybody to be able to share Amber, um, what they're needing and, uh, and work through the, the places where those needs are incompatible, um, and, uh, and come to some conclusions about that. Mary writes, when I can't bring myself to look at someone, it reminds me that I am judging. Then I can work on why the judgment is there, trying not to judge myself, oi, but remembering love allows eye contact to flow more, flow more easily, but still. Wow, Mary, that there's a couple of nuggets in there. Um, number one, that before we quit judging others, we have to also know how to not judge ourselves. right? That judgment is something that arises from a place in us and it'll judge everybody, including ourselves. So trying to get out of that place and rediscovering that voice of grace within us that knows how to love, um, and that that voice of grace wants, it wants eye contact, it desires it, that place of love within us wants that sort of connection. Um, but it is, it is vulnerable, um, it requires letting go of some things, and so it is not always easy to do. Thanks for that reminder. Marie writes, my 13-year-old daughter is one of those kids who work to not be any trouble, and I find I want to work on eye contact as well and responding immediately when she wants my attention, which is inevitable when my hands are a mess, <laughs> inevitably when my hands are a mess with making dinner. I've been doing better on this later front than the former. Um, you know what's interesting for me? I discover it's always, um, it's always at bedtime. It's always when I'm most tired and, and I see the finish line of the day right there and I'm going to go crash. And that's, that's when the kids want to have discussion. And, um, and so one of the things that, that, that we do is we try to set aside time with each kid where they can get that full attention. And so it doesn't sort of, um, you know, they can, it, it's not, it's not sprung on them, but it's also not terribly spontaneous. Um, so for instance, tomorrow morning, my son, Aiden, um, who everybody just heard, uh, come through the podcast, um, he and I go out every Thursday morning for breakfast. So it's a time he knows we're going to connect and I can give him my full attention. Um, and this, I think it's the second Sunday of every month. I take, um, the kids in rotation out for a breakfast. Um, so just looking for those, creating those spaces again to, to be able to give our full attention is so important and being really intentional about that. Trias writes, Husband was one of three boys. We had three boys. We have more misunderstanding about my need to implement boundaries around personal wants. Not intentionally disrespectful, simply lack of awareness that mine are unique to me. Um, eye contact is a challenge. Um, yeah, this, this uh, to me, this process of, of learning how to set boundaries and working through the messiness of that is, it's really the foundation the foundation of belonging. That's why there's so much in lovable about boundary setting um, in that belonging section. It's it's really the key to it. Um, and any in any place of belonging where um, there's there's been enough success at negotiating conflicting boundaries um, that that a trust starts to grow. That when our boundaries conflict, we'll work through it together and we'll be better for it. When, you, when you've gotten to that point in a place of belonging, that's when things really start to flourish. So I encourage you to continue to work on that, Trieste. It's a, it's a worthy, 
it's a worthy goal. Julie writes, I've been in the land of weariness and needing lots of rest time, which feels counterproductive, but is the real way to make space to move forward. But I don't have to always like it. That's a good reminder for all of us, Julie, um, that um, the way forward often feels like going backward. I um, I just had someone say to me yesterday, like I, I'm trying to, I think I'm, I think I'm trying to pay attention to my pain so that I can resolve it really quickly and move forward. And I'm starting to realize that I just need to make the space to pay attention to it, to feel it, um, and to not worry about moving forward, trusting it will eventually happen if I learn from my pain. Um, how profound, right? And Julie, trusting that creating the space for you to rest um, and to move forward with vitality rather than weariness, ultimately in the long run, is the way to go. Um, is is a very wise a wise way to think of it as well. So yeah, oftentimes we we have to take a long pause before moving forward. Thanks as always, everyone, for a really another great discussion. Um, didn't expect to go into um, issues of boundaries today, um, but I think Deb W made that great observation that somehow um, avoiding eye contact is about um, is an unhealthy way of keeping up an unhealthy boundary. Um, right? So I, had le I let my boundaries go and go and go. And so how did I put up an unhealthy boundary? I avoided eye contact. And so trying to make eye contact was a way of reconnecting and taking down the unhealthy boundary and realizing I needed to figure out a way to express healthy boundaries. So um, I, I really like where that went. Um, let's move on to this week's content though now, um, which really sort of deepens what we talked about last week. Last week we were talking about several different ways to love better. This week we're going to talk about one specific way but a way that is specific to every single one of you. In other words, your way of loving will not be the same as mine. Um, so let's let's continue that and get deeper into it right now with week 31 of the year of listening, loving, and living called Turning Pro at the Art of Loving. When Quinn was seven, he decided to turn pro at apologizing. We'd sent him to his room after some egregious act towards somebody in the house, and he emerged 15 minutes later with an apology note, scribbled with a black Sharpie marker and first-grade jaggedness. Several days later, we went through the same scenario, but not quite. This time, when he came out of his room, he was carrying an apology note written in multicolored crayon. The letters were less jagged, written with more care. The next time it happened, he used glitter glue and waited for it to dry. He tried to write it in cursive he'd never been taught, and the words were tender and sincere. The note was hard to read, but love always translates, doesn't it? I've been a couples therapist for over a decade. Sitting in the therapy room with two people who have two sets of histories, wounds, and resentment can feel complicated and confusing. I have a big bag of therapeutic interventions, and some days I almost empty it out. But as I held my son's sparkling work of love and remorse, it occurred to me, Maybe love is not as complicated as I'm trying to make it. Maybe it's about turning pro at one thing and dedicating our life to it. Maybe I just need to remember the old Navy engineering adage, kiss, keep it simple, stupid. Maybe we all just need to kiss. How many relationship blogs can you read before they all start to bleed into one? And isn't the one thing they bleed into always a jumbled mess of contradicting advice how much unhelpful relationship-enhancing clickbait can you be tricked into before you start to get jaded about every article that shows up in your newsfeed? Maybe, rather than making relationship drama more complex, we need to simplify our relationships dramatically. Maybe, instead of searching for the answers in words on a website, we could find our solution in the words being whispered in our hearts. And maybe the solution would be this simple. 
Decide the one thing you want to turn pro at in your relationships, and then get better at it every day by making it your art. Several weeks after Quinn decided to turn pro at apologizing, he and I had a conflict about something I can't remember anymore. In the grand scheme of things, it was not very grand. I had walked out of the living room and was already focused on washing some dishes when I heard the rustle of paper on the kitchen counter behind me. I turned around to find one of my son's I'm sorry pieces of art sitting on the counter. This time on the front of the card was a carefully drawn picture of a father and a son, and they were holding hands. At the age of seven, words often failed Quinn, and when he could find the right words, he often wouldn't write them. But a picture speaks a thousand words, and a picture of a father and son, hand in hand, spoke a thousand words about his desire for forgiveness and reconciliation and connection and belonging. Quinn had taken the art of apology to the next level. He had turned pro. And slowly it changed me. Now when my son does something boneheaded because he's anxious or sad or wounded, I don't see the kid who is lashing out. Instead, I see in my mind's eye the image of a kid on his bedroom floor, toiling over his apology. That is who he is at his center. That is his truest, worthiest self, and he's decided to make a habit of revealing it. What if we all made a habit of the good thing at the center of us? What if we all found the artist inside of us and decided to draw one good and beautiful thing upon the canvas of our lives? Stephen Pressfield writes, quote, The difference between an amateur and a professional is in their habits. An amateur has amateur habits, a professional has professional habits. What if we all decided to turn pro at one thing in our relationships? Professionals don't master a huge range of skills. There are very few multi-sport professional athletes. The most outstanding professionals focus very narrowly on their very specific craft. A professional knows we can't be all things to all people. We can only wield the skills we have the best we can. We can only be who we truly are to the people who will value who we truly are. Turning pro at your relationships might just be that simple, too. So that is our reading for this week. Um, and I'd like us to spend a little bit of time reflecting on it, um, hearing from you about the relationship gifts you notice in yourself, um, or maybe the relationship gifts you notice in others, um, things that perhaps your, your kids, your young kids, or your grown kids have been good at doing, or ways that friends you have or um, have turned pro at a particular form of loving. Um, you know, apology and forgiveness is just one example that I use in this, in this particular reading. Um, so I'm curious to hear from you. What are, what are some others that you've noticed in yourself and other people? Um, for instance, I, you know, I've realized, um, over the years that one of my gifts is writing letters. Um, I express my tenderness for people, um, and I express the best parts of me, <laughs> the more humble parts rather than the defensive parts when I write letters. Um, so, uh, so I'm trying to do that more and more in my relationships. Like I'm going retro instead of sending a quick text. I, I try to sit down and write a letter. Um, just this past week, having realized that's something I want to turn pro at in my relationships. Um, for the, for the first time in my life, I wrote a really vulnerable letter to, to a friend. Um, probably the most honest I've ever been in a friendship. Um, and it's, uh, it sparked ongoing conversation and um, and closeness and a sense of um, renewal in our our friendship. So, um, yeah. So let's let's continue to talk right now about what what are the different ways that what are the different gifts that, that we bring to relationships and the ways that we can turn pro at those gifts. Joy writes, this is my first time seeing you live. I have caught your blogs and have enjoyed them. The gift I bring to relationships is commitment. I love that. 
Um, you know what's funny about that, Joy, is that um, I think that's one of the gifts that Quinn, the same uh, kid that I was just reading about, I think that's one, another one of his gifts too, is, is loyalty um, and faithfulness and commitment. Um, and, and to recognize that that's a gift and think about how you can expand on making that salient in your relationships. What a beautiful thing. Thanks for sharing that. Julie writes, as you were reading, I recalled, some years ago, I got really tripped up on St. Paul's, quote, we must be all things to all men thing for a lot of years. I thought that was required of me personally, which made for a lot of people pleasing and worked until my mid-twenties, until it really didn't because I was only sort of being me. But maybe, I'm realizing just now, that direction was for the church collectively. Oh, Julie, what a beautiful thought. Um, we must be all things to all men. That 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 um, exhortation was not about each of you must be all things to all men, but that collectively we must be all things to all men. And Julie, I think what you're getting at is something that is so true about the way that we tend to read scripture. We tend to read it from our some of some of you may be able to hear a mower outside in the podcast. This is a very organic experience we're having here in the first months of summer. So um, try to bear with me. I'm sure it won't be there for long. There's not much grass outside. Um, so uh, yeah, I think that we tend to read scripture from our West, individualistic Western mindset. And we think that when the writers of, um, of the Bible are say you, that they're talking to us specifically, but almost always um, they're talking to the church as a whole or a group of people as a whole um, or the culture as a whole. So I think that's a very astute observation, Julie. Um, we don't need to be all things to all people. Can we just focus in on the one thing or two things maybe that we've been gifted with and just become um, more and more beautiful at, at, uh, at living those things out in the world? I think that's our challenge. Trieste writes, listening. I try to offer those around me the gift of a safe place to talk about anything fearing no judgment. I see my youngest struggling to learn it, but remain self-aware of when he needs a listener himself. That's beautiful, Trieste. Um, I, uh, I, just, um, I just read an article, I can't even remember where, it was about the qualities of holding spaces, spaces that can sort of hold our mess and our pain and our complexity and all of that and uh, and uh, one of the one of the essential elements of that is simply a space to listen um, to sort of hold all of that at once um, what a beautiful thing that you bring to relationships joy adds i am also willing to do my inner work and look at what is my contribution to the challenges i bring learning how to find the balance of self-care empowerment and allowing myself to be vulnerable i bring creativity I bring a willingness to do the work of the daily grind. So good. So good, Joy. Just to, to know that um, one of the things I bring to relationship is I will look at my stuff. Like if you're in relationship with me, I'm not going to immediately default to this is your problem. This is your contribution to this conflict we find ourselves in. I'm going to stop and I'm going to do the hard inner work of asking, how am I contributing to this? Um, that is that is beautiful. Um, and when it can then be balanced also with, um, and, and, and as I'm doing that, 
um, I sort of expect you to do the same thing. I, I hope that you will join me in this sort of self-examination and, uh, and, and, and come alongside me. And so, so to sort of model that, that gift um, and turn pro at it and then ask others to, to practice it with us is such a beautiful thing in relationship. Brenda writes, maybe empathy when I'm in a humbled place. Um, and Brenda, I think, I think just what you're saying is um, when, I'm, when I'm living from my truest self, empathy is one of my gifts. Um, and so it's, it's, about, it's about seeking out that humbled place, about seeking out that truest self within us so that we can turn pro at the gifts that we find there. It's so funny that to, that, that, that comes up for you, Brenda, because one of the things I've realized is, is that not everybody, when they're inhabiting their truest self, is gifted with empathy. Um, I've had this conversation with my oldest son recently that he needs to work a little bit harder at that because um, he stuff rolls off his back so easily, it's hard for him to imagine that it doesn't do that for everybody. And, um, and so yeah, empathy really truly is a gift of our truest self. And if we notice it, um, then let's seek to practice it. That's really good. Trias writes, people-pleasing ingrained since childhood, learning to differentiate between nurturing versus pleasing. So good. Gosh, when you think, yeah, because probably any of these gifts, uh, relationship gifts that we're trying to turn pro at, could become these sort of codependent nurturing thing, or uh, codependent people-pleasing things, right? Empathy, uh, commitment, um, self-examination. Um, so how do we live those things out of a spirit of nurturing, not people-pleasing? And the idea is that if we're living them from our true self, we will be seeking to connect with our gifts. Um, if we're living them through our false self, we will be seeking to protect with our gifts. Um, people-pleasing is a way of staying safe. Nurturing, there's nothing safe about it. It's totally vulnerable. You don't expect anything in return. Um, it's all about connection. Um, and so how I really appreciate that the nuance of that trius that we have to remember as we turn pro at our gifts, we're doing it not as a way to protect, but as a way to connect. Trius writes, once you learn to distinguish between nurturing versus pleasing, be prepared for loss of those who are only there because you're, you accustom them to being pleased. Now you disappoint by seeking. Um, that's, you know, that's trius something it's, was a consistent theme earlier in these months of belonging as we were actually sort of going out of our way to whittle down our circles of belonging and be clearer about who we belong to is that as we begin to act from our truest self, um, the ways that we were keeping people in our orbit with our false self, um, as we cease to, to live from those ways, those people will drift off. Um, they, will, they will exit our orbit um, because the thing that was attracting them to us is something we're not doing as much anymore and that that is okay. Um, we want clarity about that so that we can continue to inhabit our truest self and have that recognized by the people who remain. Julie R. writes, how to use gifts wisely? That question tracks back to the one sentence from a few weeks back that asks others to take responsibility for the moments they feel hurt. Um, yeah, yep. Um, you're referring to the one sentence that can, that can change your life, the idea that um, I'm not going to... Um, I'm not going to worry so much about hurting people anymore. Um, and so if I do hurt you, um, please let me know so I can think about it and decide if I need to apologize. Um, and, uh, and yeah, so the idea there is that um, we sometimes reflexively 
You know, we might use our gift of apology to reflexively mend a relationship quickly, avoid conflict. Um, people who are raised in homes where if they weren't the one to apologize, nobody was going to apologize. And there's gonna be this huge elephant in the room and it was terribly awkward. And so they discovered they, they needed to be the one to apologize. Um, so yeah, how, if, if our gift is apology, how do we wield that in a way that is not about protecting and hiding um, from the consequences of not apologizing, um, but is a sincere, a sincere thing we can do within healthy boundaries? That's, I think that's what we're getting at, is wielding these gifts wisely is just as important as, as wielding them at all. Marie writes, vulnerability, I think, but just as frequently, walls are also quick to come up and I hide when I feel unsafe. Work in progress. Well, and Marie, I think that's what we're, you know, you're, you're getting at it exactly. Um, that our relationship gifts reside within our truest self. Um, and when that truest self begins to feel at risk, we seek to protect and our walls go up and our false self goes up. And we can't practice our gifts from within our false self. And so it's okay to have some grace with ourselves to watch that ebb and flow of when we're residing in our true self and living from it versus when we're back in our false self like I was in the last couple of weeks and uh, and then to go, oh wait, uh, I don't want to be here. Uh, I want to return to my, in your case Marie, to my true self where vulnerability is a gift of mine and I want to think about how to practice that um, with my people right now um, and continue to improve at getting better and better at it. Um, it'll be a way of returning you to your true self, sort of like a beacon. No idea what that noise is. We don't have any grass outside. <laughs> We don't have lawn people. Like, what is it? Oh, goodness. Amber writes, I used to be a very lovable person, but life, tough relationship with my spouse mainly, and not setting good boundaries for myself has led me away from my true, happy, loving self over time. I want to get back to being lovable because it's a gift from God. And I, I really, Amber, that comment is so important right now as we're talking about this ebb and flow of residing in our true self and then leaving it to, to be living more from our false self. Um, one of the things I want you to know and I want everybody right now listening to know is that, that, you, that being lovable is um, it's not a season of life. It's a fact of life. It's not something you move in and out of. It's the reality of who you are in your truest self and that you may you may go away from that but being lovable doesn't go away from you it's in you um, and so the challenge when you find yourself in a season where you've gone away from it and it's all about now protection and hiding and um, and so on is to begin that journey back to your truest self um, to discover what is still true of you and has always been true of you but which you've forgotten and which you have ceased to live from for a while so that's I think it's so important that we realize the, the facthood of that. As always, everyone, um, thanks for this beautiful discussion. Um, we're going to continue it just on the other side of reading this week's, this pra this week's practice. So um, let's do that right now. We're going to talk about taking ownership of and pride, and a good pride in our natural relationship giftings and turning pro in one of them. Um, so here it is, the week 31 practice. You have a relationship gift, something you are naturally good at a way of loving that no one else can do in exactly the way you do it. Perhaps it's the art of apologizing or forgiveness, gentleness or generosity, presence or attention, support or grace, or some other rendition of love. You know what it is. It's the thing you're proud of about yourself, so proud you sometimes feel prideful when you think about it. Be prideful. This is the good kind of pride, 
You can stop minimizing your gift. You can stop being humble about it. You can stop suppressing it and burying it. You can stop being an amateur at it. Own it, claim it, inhabit it. You can decide right now and here today that you are going to become pro, a pro at that particular act of love. This week, make a professional habit of it. Practice it wherever you go, in whatever you do. Turn that good gift inside of you into the art of relationship. Remember, your task is not to get recognition for it or reciprocation of it. The pro doesn't do his or her job to be loved. The pro does his or her job because the job itself is an act of love and thus a reward in and of itself. This week, keep it simple and simply love in the way you've been given to love. So that is this week's reading. And and now I just want to continue with the conversation we've been having um, and incorporate any reflections you might have upon this week's reading. Does it feel inspiring? Does it feel challenging? Does it feel scary? Um, what, what arises in you when you think of this idea of, of identifying that one thing that you're gifted at and going out and doing it? Alan writes, Kelly, the reading of the practice just sent chills up my spine. Alan, uh, that's got to be a good thing. <laughs> um, and if you're able to put words to those chills, you let me, you let us know. Mary writes, the reading, recognizing my gifts is much easier for me than, quote, going out and giving them, introvert here. The larger world is much scarier than working with my family. Um, You know what? I think that's fair, Mary. I think it's fair to say then um, that um, you honor honor that about yourself, um, that your introversion makes practicing your gifts um, broadly less comfortable. Um, you, you might find this hard to believe about me, but I had decided that I don't, I'm not going to speak in groups very much anymore. Um, I don't, I'm an introvert. Um, I'd prefer to be talking one-on-one with people. And so in fact, I have a group meeting this afternoon. I'm probably not going to say much. Um, and I will reflect on it afterwards and maybe reach out to individuals and, and share my thoughts, but respect that about yourself. And, uh, and if we're, if you just, are more intentional about practicing your gifts with your family this week, then that's a win. Go for it. Um, let that be the space where you practice it. Deb F. writes, Funny, Mary, I'm an introvert, and I find it scarier to deal with family than with the world. <laughs> Unfortunately, I have not had healthy boundaries with my family, and now that I am putting that, that into place gradually, it is not being appreciated. Um, Deb, and I know that's been a, a journey for you over this last couple of years is... Um, is discovering that your places of belonging are not necessarily with uh, your family. And so let me let me sort of clarify um, how you can have two introverts, right, who um, find that uh, they are comfortable expressing their gifts in very different places. And I think what you're, each of you are getting at is that um, for an introvert in particular, um, being open and vulnerable and expressive is is particularly more difficult in the places where they're not sure they belong. Um, and so, uh, Mary, you're saying, I have, I have a place of belonging with my family, so it's easier there. Deb, you're saying, I don't have a place of belonging with my family, so it's harder there. <laughs> and uh, and so let's focus. Let's And that's what this is all about. It's not about going out and trying to build huge circles of belonging. It's about deepening the sense of belonging in the circles we already have. So let's identify where those places of belonging are this week, and let's really focus on practicing our gifts within them. Sue writes, have always felt if I didn't apologize, I would be rejected. Now that I understand I am lovable, I've changed my thinking on that. Um, that is a beautiful thing to hear, Sue. Um, apology for you um, sounds like it is now, and now 
it is a practice of your truest self, um, not of the false self that is is going around apologizing, hoping that that uh, to avoid rejection. Um, so yes, thank you for that affirmation. That those are those are distinct distinct motivations for apologizing. Julie R writes, yes, not empires of belonging, but wells of belonging. Yep, love it. Empires are broad and expansive and huge, and wells are narrow but deep. I love it. Great metaphors. Marie writes, I'm listening for what good thing at the center of me that I can turn pro at. Have to head out. Have a good week, everyone. And Marie, thanks for that send-off message um, that if, if you are not necessarily clear about what that thing is, and then you can't jump into practicing it this week, that's okay too. Spend the week listening for what that thing is. And if you're still not hearing anything, four or five days from now, um, go to your places of belonging, the people you trust to, to um, know you the best, and, and ask them, what am I, like, what is it about me? Now, this could be particularly vulnerable, but what is it about me that, that is most attractive to you? What is it about me that you feel I do best in relationship and let them let them be the voice of grace to you. Brenda writes, I'm just going to focus on belonging and expressing appreciation to my immediate family for their love a few more weeks. Like gratitude, what a beautiful relational gift <laughs> to be able to tell people what you're grateful for about the ways that they've cared for you and loved you. That's a beautiful relational gift. Uh, can you imagine if we got really consistent at that in our relationships, what it would do for our circles of belonging? All right, let's wrap up here for today. Next week, we will continue to dig into this idea of cultivating deeper belonging amongst our closest people through the disciplined practice of curiosity. It'll be week 32 of the year of listening, loving, and living, which is entitled Becoming Students of the People We Belong to. Until then, remember you are lovable and you know how to love. Now it's time to turn pro at it. Thanks again for joining us on the Lovable Podcast. Remember, this companion book can stand on its own, but it stands a little taller and a little stronger on the shoulders of Lovable. So if you have not picked up a copy of Lovable yet, it is available wherever books are sold, and you can get it in paperback, digital, or audio format. If you'd like to simply download a sample of Lovable, you can go to my website, drkellyflanagan.com. That's drkellyflanagan.com. In the right sidebar, sign up to receive my blog post by email, and you will immediately receive a free sample of Lovable and a free copy of my ebook, The Marriage Manifesto. The music for the Lovable podcast is courtesy of Ellie Holcomb and is entitled Wonderfully Made from her album Red Sea Road. Until next week, friends, remember, you are lovable. Yeah.